Sunday again. Good morning to you, Ben. Good morning. Yeah, I love a Sunday, I gotta say. Ben. Friday is my favorite. Yeah, I'm a big fan <laughs> of Sundays, though. I do dread yeah. it a little bit, knowing you're heading back into Monday, but... Uh, I do love Sundays. Great yeah. day to just hang out. Normally watch a lot of football. Not the case Not this today, weekend right. uh, as we gear up for Super Bowl Sunday next weekend. And it's the Chiefs versus the San Francisco 49ers. Again. Again. Yeah. Um, this goes back quite a ways. I'm not sure the exact year, but one of these two teams are always right there in the hunt, uh, especially the Kansas City Chiefs over the last number yep. of years. I'm sure it's going to be a great game, but I'm focused on the Newfoundland Growlers game this afternoon. 4 right. p.m. Mary Brown Center taking on the Indy Fuel one more time before uh, the Indy Fuel take off, and then the Growlers welcome the Greenville Swamp Rabbits to town <laughs> next weekend, one of the greatest team names in all yes. of sports. Wow. So was this the first weekend that they had ever – Faced off with the Indy Fuel? Well, not the first weekend playing the Indy Fuel, but the first weekend Indy has been here in oh, town okay. in St. John's at Mary Brown Center. So first time playing at Mary Brown Center. Uh, great weekend so far. Hoping for another great one, 4 p.m. this afternoon. But uh, it was a busy news week. It certainly was. We actually covered a lot of ground. There was a by-election, so there we have the results that of week. that. Yeah. Um, we'll talk tech as we do each and every week. Lots of talk around cell phones in schools, immigration. So we do have lots to get through this morning. So grab yourself a cup of coffee. Or a cup of tea. Piece of toast. Maybe you like biscuits. Join us right here on the best <laughs> of your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, this year, the Marine Institute is commemorating six decades of maritime education and innovation as it marks its 60th anniversary. I had an opportunity to head over to the Institute and speak with Vice President of Memorial University, responsible for Marine, Dr. Paul Brett. Yeah, so 60 years ago, we started on Parade Street and... Uh, until about 1985 when this building was was uh, uh, it came into existence uh, we were still an independent college in the college system uh, in Newfoundland Labrador uh, we've changed names a, a number of times but we we're always the fisheries college and the marine institute uh, college of fisheries uh, fisheries institute, <laughs> fisheries institute. Uh, so now we are the fisheries and marine institute of memorial university 1992 we joined Memorial um, and it's actually given us opportunity to grow into the Institute we are today um, but we are more than just this campus on the hill we have a huge campus out in Holyrood we have a campus in uh, Stephenville we have a campus in Lewisport and what's not well known is that we have uh, a division called uh, Seabed community-based education delivery that travels around Newfoundland, Labrador, and Canada, bringing our education there. So, How integral was it to, you know, the development and the vision of the Marine Institute to join Memorial University in the early 90s? At the time, it, it, was, uh, it was an arranged union. I don't know that both either side wanted the union to start. Uh, if you read some of the historical documents, uh, there were... There was a there was fear. What would it mean? Would we get absorbed? Uh, um, so those fears uh, probably uh, uh, were 
weren't uh, an impediment to some of the development. But if you see where we've come in the last 30 years, and this institution now has a huge range of bachelor and graduate programming, actually our graduate programming now is where our largest growth is. So we are attracting people to learn from our faculty in, in, in areas at the, at the master's and PhD level. So it was it it was huge for our development and and our reputation globally allows us to attract students into those into those areas. And I guess the vision to become a hub of ocean technology, marine technology, has it's really well on the way of being realized. Tell me how that was made possible. It was it was really made possible based on our relationship with government, who supported us throughout our growth our relationship with our university, who supported us throughout our growth, and our relationship with industry. Those pillars are what makes and has made the Institute as, as uh, um, successful as it's been. Um, we are very connected to our industry in, in ocean tech and in fisheries and in marine transportation. And, that, and today, in 2024, we have three schools that have those monikers or those are their main areas of uh, um, of inquiry and, and education um, not that long ago um, in 2008 we were two schools we were two schools for maybe uh, 50 years of 45 years of our existence now we're three uh, will we become four or will, do we turn into two again who knows where the future might bring us but one underlying piece that will always uh, keep us grounded is our connection to industry and listening to what industry's needs are from a human resource development perspective and from a research and development perspective um, and our commitment to the province. So we are a maritime province. We have been in the blue economy for since the blue economy, since the ocean crea was created. So we were here. Uh, even our indigenous populations were so uh, marine-based. Um, so the blue economy is really what we're about. Weathering that time during the 90s when the moratorium struck struck our economy, struck our culture, how difficult a time was that? It was very difficult, but it was also a big opportunity for this organization because there was a lot of uh, reskilling and upskilling of people that some would characterize as the largest layoff in Canadian hist history. So what would those people affected by that moratorium do? What would they do next? And a lot of our community-based education, it wasn't called that back then, was really about reaching the people of the province to figure out opportunities and retraining to find uh, uh, new opportunities. How important is collaboration when it comes to the whole operation at the Marine Institute? Because you've got that bond with Memorial University, you're you know entrenched in industry. What other collaborations are on the horizon here? Uh, that's a great question. There's, there's, I'll give you an example of one we just announced this week. It's a collaboration between uh, Memorial University through the Marine Institute, uh, Dalhousie, and the Hakai Institute on the west coast of Canada um, on a center of excellence for observational oceanography. So we all know, and the globe knows, we need to know more about the ocean. So we're attracting uh, 10 scholars, international scholars, students to study here in Newfoundland, Labrador around the skills and the tangible skills to be able to make the measurements, collect the data and understand the data. That's that kind of 
collaboration comes from our history, our history of being um, active in the world of ocean observation. So a lot of people understand or know about uh, a thing we've done here for about 15 years now called Smart Bay. A number of boys out in Placentia Bay that are constantly uh, recording meteorological and oceanographic observations and sharing that data with whoever wants to look at it. Um, so that takes a lot of very smart people uh, to keep that stuff running in what is not necessarily a hospitable climate. But our expertise put us at the table to be a global leader to now take that, that expertise and give it to others. So that's that training program, and that's a, a brilliant example of what's happening right now, just announced this week, that uh, it's pretty special to be a part of. Yeah, and I'm talking about this week and this year, 60 years is a long time, Dr. Britt. How are you celebrating? Uh, something new every day. So uh, I just met with our alumni and development group, so looking at doing some profiles of some uh, alumni, and, and you think 60 years is a long time, and we have some people in very, very uh, uh, influential roles these days, and, and they're very proud to be a Marine Institute graduate. And uh, we want to celebrate that. We want to profile them. We have a number of events uh, here at the Institute. We just did an employee event a couple of, we couple of weeks ago on the actual day, the birthday party, where we did uh, a little lunch celebration down in our cafeteria. Uh, but we will be rolling out different uh, um, videos, social media things over the coming year to celebrate some of the history, but of course, where are we going in the future? That's going to be pretty important uh, um, and how we will still remain true to what grounds us in the ocean economy. And that's my conversation with Vice President Memorial University responsible for the Marine Institute, Dr. Paul Brett, as they mark 60 years. It's their 60th anniversary. It was great to head down there and meet with Dr. Brett. And it's funny, Ben, because you know my dad is a retired professor yes. at the Marine Institute. So Dr. Brett and my dad were teaching classes around the same area of study. And actually, <laughs> uh, dad had a class. And this is what Dr. Brett told me. He said, your father used to take his class. He taught communication. So he would take the class to the intermission at the mall, <laughs> and they would people watch and, and study the crowds and study the people. But uh, Dr. Brett said the issue was they were always late coming back yeah, yeah. from the food court, so they would be late for his <laughs> class. So it was great to catch up with him. And, you know, 60 years, yeah, many incredible. more to come, many Absolutely. more to come. Well. In other news, February is Black History Month, a month set aside to honor the achievements of black Canadians, celebrate black culture, and reaffirm Canada's commitment to a more diverse, welcoming country for everyone. Laura Beltenba is an advocate for the rights of BIPOC, marginalized, and underrepresented communities. She joined us on Friday morning. Why is it important to celebrate and highlight black history in Newfoundland and Labrador? I think it's because there's a tendency to believe black history doesn't exist within our province and people always seem to associate black history just with slavery and slave trade and black history is being made every day especially within this province and I think it's important to acknowledge it, celebrate it so people begin to see it as part of Newfoundland and Labrador's history. Do you think the education system has fallen behind and really society on the whole when it comes to teaching black history? I think it's tried but it's still been caught up in just perpetuating the whole struggle 
as that being all that black history is. I think there's so much more to black history than just our struggle. And the education system forgets to teach us about that. Yeah, the theme for this this Black History Month is Black Excellence, a heritage to celebrate, a future to build. Tell me how you'll be celebrating. So like last year, this year I plan to spend every day of February documenting Black Canadians who history might not have taught us about. And also I've partnered with Municipality Newfoundland and Labrador to celebrate Black Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So it's a pleasure to be able to tell their stories, talk about what Black History Month means to them. And that way it becomes all of Newfoundland and Labrador's history as well as Canadian history. What further work needs to be done to make this a more inclusive home for all Black Canadians? I think it's acknowledging that celebrating Black culture within Newfoundland and Labrador doesn't take away from Newfoundland and Labrador's culture. So I think doing that will help, but also talking about the fact that racism still is alive and well within the province, and we do need to actively work to be anti-racist to create that inclusion. I'm speaking with Laura Belt Mba. She is an advocate for the rights of BIPOC, marginalized, and underrepresented communities. The Prime Minister is declaring February Black History Month and encouraged all of us to share the stories of Black Canadians. What stories will you be sharing? Personally, I'll be sharing. There's today's post is about Chloe Cooley. So people can always check out my social media to see the history of Black Canadians. All 29 days, there's such diversity individuals will be featured and I hope people learn a little something because I did while I curated this. All right, Laura Bell, do you see much racism in our community? Yes, there is racism here. I think it's different than people expect it to be when we think about the way racism shows up within the U.S. compared to how it shows up in Canada and in Newfoundland and Labrador. So I think it is here. We just need to be willing to acknowledge how it shows up. And you also have a young son. To what degree does that inspire you to fight for fair treatment of all Black Canadians? I think he is the main push for why I do this. Um, I My parents taught me how to survive a world that is racist, and that's all I was worried about before. But then I had my son, and I refused to have him come to me and talk to me about the way racism shows up for him and say I didn't do anything to try and make it a better world. Inspiring. Final thoughts on Black History Month, Lorbell. I think it's an excellent month. It's sorry that it's only 29 days, but I think there's so much learning, growth, and celebration that can be shared this month. And if people have thought, I don't know much about Black history, now is the opportunity to begin to learn. There is tons of resources out there. Take it upon yourself if it's important to you. And that is advocate for the rights of BIPOC, marginalized and underrepresented communities, Laura Bell Mba, speaking all about how February is Black History Month. And we will have more on this tomorrow morning on your VOCM mornings as well. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Yeah, let's look back at Tech Talk Tuesday. In this week's chat, we were talking about all things cybersecurity, iOS updates from Apple, and the latest on AI regulation. We had our resident technologist, Kevin Andrews, join us to break down all the news. Uh, Canadian sure. cybersecurity researchers, they've sounded the alarm following the discovery of a massive super leak that has exposed a staggering 26 million personal records. The unprecedented breach includes data from prominent social media platforms raising serious concerns about the security and privacy of people online. Kevin, are you able to comment further on this breach? 
Yeah, I mean, according to these security experts, the data from popular platforms, including uh, LinkedIn, uh, X or Twitter, uh, Dropbox, Canva, and even Adobe uh, have been exposed in what the research team refers to as sort of the mother of all breaches. Now, uh, it's unclear where this information was stolen or who's responsible, but many security experts are saying that people should be very concerned if they get informed that their personal information was included in this breach. Now, uh, the researchers who uncovered the breach suspect it was compiled by either a malicious actor or, or a data broker or some service that works with large amounts of stolen data. And so this breach really comes at a time when Canadians are increasingly losing their confidence that their personal data is being protected. So with that in mind, uh, you know, one silver lining here is that this breach um, uh, researchers saying is, is there's a high likelihood that there's a high number of duplicates in, in the leaked data, which would then translate really into smaller numbers there for sure. Yeah, and do you have any advice or do the cybersecurity experts offer any advice in response to the data breach? Well, users need to be vigilant about scam calls, unusual emails and messages, and unusual social requests. Now, the number one thing cybersecurity experts are saying is is to not reuse your passwords. Now, I know we're all guilty of it. It happens, but, you know, it would be sort of the main thing that I would recommend as well. And also, too, I, I would also encourage really the adoption of several advanced security tools like using what they call multi-factor authentication, which is combining a password with a code sent to your device or password managers, which are really apps or or services that really secure and store and and generate complex passwords. I find them annoying, but I I see the benefits of definitely uh, adhering to that. And staying with security here, Kevin, Apple has introduced a new system feature called stolen device protection. So as phone theft incidents are on the rise, this feature aims to provide extra defense against unauthorized access and safeguard personal data. Can you further talk on this feature and, and why users should really have this enabled? Yeah, I mean, it's a cool feature. It's now available in the latest iOS update, I believe 17.3, and it works by keeping track of a user's familiar locations, and it strengthens protection outside of these places by using either biometric features such as Face ID or Touch ID over using traditional passcodes. For example, you know, if a thief can you know, covertly watch you type in your passcode, steals your phone, and then tries to erase it to sell it, uh, stolen device protection will step in and demand either a face ID or, or a touch ID scan for, for ownership or verification, excluding use of these passcodes. And, and so, you know, enabling stolen device protection is easy. Users just have to update their device to 70.3 and, and navigate to uh, a face ID or and passcode or, or touch ID and passcode and settings to, to sort of activate it there. And Kevin, as AI shapes our digital world, regulating it becomes crucial in both private and public sectors throughout the country. Now, recent discussions at an AI conference highlighted the challenges of effective regulation and stressed collaboration with global partners. What are your insights on achieving AI balance and its potential impact for Canadians? Well, a good question. I mean, in light of this AI conference, which was part of the Ontario Privacy Commissioner's education efforts during uh, Data Privacy Week last week, it was evident that the need for comprehensive regulation extends to all parts of government. Uh, you know, it was discussed at the conference uh, for the importance of what they're saying is flexible AI rules in both public and private sectors, really to encourage innovation while also maintaining um, AI responsibility. And so with that in mind, you know, I believe there were three key priorities agreed upon by all members regarding the principles that should govern AI rules. And, and they include, number one, you know, people need to trust AI. I mean, for instance, 
making clear the risks of using AI and putting in mitigation strategies to really minimize harm to people. Number two is people need to know that AI will act responsibly and, for instance, have mechanisms in place allowing residents to sort of challenge decisions informed by AI. And I think thirdly, you know, people need to know that there are no AI secrets. For instance, you know, there needs to be full transparency and, and disclosure. And so, you know, taking all of that into account, getting this right is, is really not just about setting rules. I think it's about shaping a future where AI serves society responsibly and ethically. And that's my conversation on Tech Talk Tuesday with our resident technologist, Kevin Andrews. Still lots more to bring you here on your VOCM Mornings. The best of it. Stay with us. Yeah, we're going to check in with Ah. the new MAJ for Conception Bay East, Bell Island, Fred Hutton, after these. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. Liberal Fred Hutton will be moving into the seat left vacant by progressive conservative member David Brazel in the House of Assembly. Fred Hutton has been elected as the MHA for Conception Bay East at Bell Island. Hutton garnered 2,603 votes. PC candidate Tina Neary came second with 2,152. NDP candidate Kim Churchill took third with 846 votes. And independent Daryl Harding received 70 votes. Fred Hutton joined us Wednesday morning here in the BOCM studios. Thoughts on your victory? Uh, it's still a little surreal, I guess. Uh, your uh, colleague Ricky Duggan, Richard Duggan, asked me last night the same thing, and I, I basically said, you know, this whole process, having worked on other campaigns with Premier Fury, his uh, his um, leadership, his by-election, and then the general election, it is quite different. Uh, when you're supporting someone versus having others around you because your name is on the ballot. So I think that uh, probably once I get back up to the Confederation building, this is the longest stretch I've been away from it for a while, and uh, see some of the folks there. I know there's some sort of orientation I have to go through, and then, of course, the house is going to sit within a month or so. So I'm going to be... That'll probably be when it'll hit me, Ben. So, Fred, let's just go back a little bit. What made you want to do this, want to take this on, step out from kind of behind the scenes and get out there as the candidate? Uh, You know, it, it wasn't something that I thought about when I left journalism to go to work with Premier Fury. Uh, My roles were kind of clearly defined, although they sort of change on a daily basis, much like in journalism, where you just don't really know what where the day is going to take you because of events that unfold and how you how you have to deal with them, but also planning. Um, And of of course, through COVID, it was really that was a large focus of what, you know, any government across the country or around the world really would have to do. Uh, But, you know, over the last little while, and once it became apparent that, uh, the uh, former MHA was going to step down. Uh, it seemed like a natural fit. It, it's the place where I grew up and lived most of my life. Uh, I know a lot of the people down there. They know me. Um, I saw firsthand what an MHA had to do from the side of the perspective of mostly of what the Premier was doing because I was spending most of my time with him. And his uh, district is on the West Coast, of course, in Humber Gross Morn. So spending a lot of time with him and understanding the needs uh, of uh, what was required of an MHA. And... It just seemed like a natural fit for what I was doing uh, already uh, to sort of uh, to progress to that point. And I said this on the night that I launched uh, my campaign back in the middle of December. Being an MHA and being uh, a reporter or a journalist are, are, are similar. There's so many parallels, but it's it really boils down to people tend to not call you to say everything is going okay. But when they need help, they phone either a journalist or they phone open line or they phone, you know, the VOCM morning show or they phone their MHA when they need help navigating through life or, you know, for whatever reason, if they need to help getting through some 
problem they're having with the provincial government or the, perhaps even their own municipality. Sometimes they call on that level, uh, much as the same as they would phone a reporter like yourself to say, look, I need some help or I need some light shone on this. I need, I need this fixed because it's not working for me. So those parallels are really quite there. And going door to door was kind of much the same as being a reporter is walking up to people and asking them what's on their mind banging on their door cold call and you have to do it sometimes as a, as a journalist and reporter as well uh, in this case though you get to go back and you know take all that input from people which we have done for the last four or five weeks and I've made some pretty careful notes uh, on what issues are people are concerned about and how we can make life a little bit easier for them and to make the system sort of work for them and, and them as well, you know, fit, in, fit into the system if they're not aware of certain programming. We've already actually started doing it. I mean, I, it was incredible that during the campaign, people would come to the campaign office uh, and, and request help. And, you know, either through some sort of health care issue they were having or home care, just certain things that we've already done uh, for people in the district. What are some of those main issues that you heard when knocking on doors? Uh, so Conception Bay East Bell Island is the biggest district when you look at not geography, but the number of people. There's over, just over 15,000 people. And it really consists of three separate areas. Bell Island, of course, is unto itself, Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and then we take in a portion of Paradise. Paradise is actually serviced by three different districts, Mount Sayo and Topsail Paradise, and then part of it, when, when there was the reduction from 48 to 40 seats, it, about 4,300 uh, homes came into conception-based Bell Island. So let's start with Paradise. They're, keen, they're obviously very keen on a high school, a new high school. But also, as the third largest municipality in the province, uh, just over 24,000 people, the infrastructure in some cases, and I'm, when I'm talking about roads, are basically the same as they were when it was a, you know, a bedroom community of about five or 6,000. So that obviously needs to be addressed. Uh, and I met with the council uh, last week. And they expressed all those concerns. I said, look, I'd be willing to, you know, happy to work with you as we move forward. Met with the mayor, Dan Bobbitt, and some of his council members. Most of them were there. Uh, in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, health care is, is top of mind for folks there. Uh, they want to see their health care clinic brought back into the cove, back into Portugal Cove. Now, these family care teams and the recommendations that were made a little while back uh, look at the area of Torbay and Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, of having some sort of a more localized family care team down there. And for Bell Island, really, the, the first thing you hear about is the ferry. And if the ferry is working, they all feel that everything else will fall into place. And you think about this. The Bell Island ferry, during June and July of last year, carries more passengers than Marine Atlantic. The numbers are there. 14,000 people went to Bell Island last year just to see the mine. And they closed five weeks early because of uh, sickness within their group. So they, they missed their shoulder season. So you could be 16,000, 17,000 people because people tend to travel a lot more through the month of September here. So the ferry is the big issue for Bell Island, but also health care over there, the emergency room. The number of closures uh, is a lot less than before, uh, but we're, we're continuing to work to try to maintain uh, a level of service that the folks on Bell Island uh, deserve. And infrastructure over there as well. There hasn't been any road work done there really, you know, to speak of in about 15 years. We're speaking with MHA elect for the district of Conception Bay East Bell Island, Fred Hutton on your VOCM mornings. And Fred, this riding has been long held by the progressive mm -hmm. conservatives now for some 20 years. Why do you think you were able to wrestle it away, turn it red? Uh, hard work. We had about, I think it was about 115 or 120 volunteers. It may have been more. One day last weekend, I think we had about 65 people on the ground in the district in various areas. 
We went to Bell Island with about three dozen people two weekends in a row. And it was basically just getting out and talking to people and making sure that they were aware of the by-election, first of all, but also just listening to them. And when people, uh, you know, feel like somebody actually cares and they, you know, have an empathetic ear and will go back and, and possibly try to do something about their concerns, um, I think they like that. And, you know, with respect to, you know, why it was, uh, the, you know, held by the opposition for, for 20 years... It was obviously a stronghold, and they had, you know, decent representation. But now I think it's time for it, it's time for a change, and and they want that. They want to see, you know, and as well as an an endorsement of what Premier Fury and his caucus started back in 2020. Uh, they people tend to say to me they like what they see, they like that uh, somebody is you know at the wheel with with uh, you know good sense and a good vision for the province, and they want to be part of that. And having a government member. I mean, the Premier lives in the district as well. He's also in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. I'm there. Um, you know, so we're on the ground and we know exactly what's happening in our own district. He's, you know, he's going to the soccer pitches. He's going to the, so- the, the rinks, talking to people who live in the area. You know, he hears it every day. Trust me. As do I when you when you stop. My kids are older now, so I don't do that stuff. But, you know, when you stop at the local store to get gas, whatever, nobody's hesitant to tell you what's on their mind. Fred, do you expect to have a seat in Cabinet? I have no idea. Uh, right now, what I want to do, uh, Ben, is take uh, just a couple of days to figure out what I have to do in my role as an MHA. And uh, I know there's some sort of orientation for that and learn uh, there, even though I've been around them for the last three and a half years, a little bit of a learning curve there. And, uh, you know, with respect to uh, the home front, I think we're going to try to get the Christmas decorations done this weekend (laughs) because there was literally no time over the last uh, five weeks or four weeks or whatever to to do anything much at home. What do you see as the biggest challenges of moving from behind the scenes now to an elected official? Uh, well, I guess the accountability for people who, uh, you know, who elected me and making sure that I continue to listen to them. And I've had a bunch of notes uh, this morning. I, you know, I've probably got about 400 messages there that I've got to answer. Uh, to anybody who did message me, I want to say thanks very much for your kind words. I will get to you all eventually. But it's, uh, I, I think, just making sure that I remember that it was the people of Conception Bay, East Bell Island, who have put me there. And I need to remember that for as long as I am elected and in that position. And I intend to do that. There was a bit of a low voter turnout, less than half of registered voters um, showing up to the polls. Does that concern you at all? Uh, well, you know, in my former life, uh, you know, sitting in the chair where you guys are, it uh, it always concerned me that people, we, we'd only get 55, 56. But you see it in, in, in uh, national elections. You see it in provincial elections. By-elections are historically a lower turnout anyhow. I'm not sure if the weather had anything to do with it yesterday. Uh, the early part of the day, I think, was a bit of a lower turnout because people were shoveling and, you know, trying to get themselves dug out after the big storm we had on uh, Monday. But, um, you know, I think it was kind of in line with what we had anticipated if you look at the historical numbers of how many people turned out. I always like to see it uh, a little bit higher. And, and, and even at the doors when people would say, well, you know, we're not sure if we're going to support you. I said, well, that's great, but, like, you've you got to get out and vote. Everybody needs to exercise that right. Not everybody in this world has it. You do. So, uh, you know, I, but again, it just goes back to I, I plan to continue to listen to the people who elected me. I'm going to be accessible and, you know, happy to take anyone's call at any time and, and talk about whatever issues on their mind. 
And that is the new MHA for Conception Bay East, Bell Island Liberal, Fred Hutton. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Well, most young people are quite attached to their cell phones. Whether or not they should be allowed to use them in school is up for debate in many parts of the country. So Narrative Research decided to ask Canadians whether they support or oppose a cell phone ban in schools in their province. This is really interesting. Margaret Chapman is Chief Operating Officer and partner with Narrative Research. She joined us earlier this week to talk about it. What and why, first of all, did you decide to undertake this research? Well, we saw uh, that there's been some research around the world showing some positive outcomes from banning cell phones in schools, and Ontario and Quebec have decided to take that move, and other provinces may be considering such a move. So we wanted to understand what would people think if, if that happened, because there's been lots of discussion in Quebec and Ontario when those bans have been considered and put into place. What questions did Narrative Research ask Canadians? So we first asked to what extent whether people supported or opposed banning cell phones in public school classrooms in their own province. And then we asked them why they supported or why they opposed. And first of all, we found out that 80% of the population across the country supported a ban to some extent, with half of people supporting it completely and 26% somewhat supporting such a ban. And there's just 15% of the population that would either somewhat or completely oppose such a ban. And then there's 5% of people who are sitting on the fence, not quite sure just yet. Were there any notable differences from one region to another? Yeah, it's interesting because Quebec is the province that's just most recently been talking about this and put a ban in place and really high level of support there. 88% of the population there said they support a ban. But otherwise, it's pretty consistent across the country, varies from a low of 74% in D.C. up to that 88%. And in other provinces, like in our region of Atlantic Canada, 77% for Atlantic Canada and really consistent across the four provinces in Atlantic Canada. Were there differences from one generation to the next? Yeah, you might you might not be surprised to hear that uh, the youngest cohort, so the 18 to 24-year-olds, are the least likely to support such a ban. Only half of them said they would support compared to 90% of boomers um, and support kind of increases with age. So millennials, 70% of them said that they would support a ban and Gen Xers, so those are the kind of 35 to 54-year-olds, uh, 81% of them would support a ban. I'm speaking with Chief Operating Officer and Partner with Narrative Research, Margaret Chapman. Were there any reasons given for people who were in support of a ban? Yeah, the, by far the largest reason that people support a ban of cell phones in school is because they can per, be a distraction in the learning environment. So people said that's really positive that you can get rid of that distraction. <clears throat> and then there were a variety of other kind of related reasons, like it encourages a focus on studies Um But other people also mentioned only a few, but there were other reasons like it can reduce cyberbullying incidents. Um, It could even reduce cheating by using cell phones, Um, but also some communications related um, uh, reasons as well. Like it it could improve teacher student engagement or promote face to face communication, which, of course, is something that we didn't do quite as much during the pandemic. So people had a, a whole variety of reasons that they thought this is a really good idea. And what about comments from people who were in opposition to a ban? 
Yeah, there's a couple related to safety and security. So some people said, um, it, you know, you need a cell phone. A kid needs a cell phone in school uh, for parental communication and emergencies or safety and security concerns. But there were also um, some people who said, well, it's per- personal responsibility and discipline that kids should learn uh, to not have it um, active all the time and that's something that you need to practice um, on your own and some people also noted that there can be educational benefits of having cell phones um, to be able to look up information um, or some kind of technological integration of um, cell phones into education so obviously there's two sides to the argument but um, by far people are in favor of such a ban and how would you think this research could be used Well, I think as as school boards and governments are thinking about this issue and uh, wanting to encourage focus on studies, um, I think it just gives us a baseline to understand where people um, are feeling about such a a move. It's not really one of those issues where there's even divide. There seems to be really strong support. Um, And one of the other interesting um, demographic differences is we looked at the results by whether people have children in school or not, and there's equal support whether or not someone has uh, kids in school. 80% of people with kids in school, um, school age kids said they support it and same for people without. So it's really widespread support across the population. And that is my conversation with Margaret Chapman of Narrative Research. So yeah, as she points out, Ontario, Quebec have made the move to eliminate cell phone usage within their school systems. It definitely has sparked some lively debate across the nation. I was out and about chatting with folks about the possibility of a cell phone school ban in Newfoundland and Labrador. The K-12 school system, yes for sure, because uh, where do they spend their time? Nobody talks to each other anymore. If they lose uh, uh, their uh, focus with their thumbs, they won't be able to talk to each other. That's all I can say. I don't think they should be banned entirely from the schools, um, mostly because the kids can't, I don't, want them, I don't think it's good for them to do it in school, but they need communication with their family. So I think some kids would be totally stressed out if they didn't have that connection to be able to get through to their family. Right, so safety would be a reasoning. Yeah, exactly, yeah, for sure. What about banning in the classroom, but maybe being allowed yeah, to use Yeah, in the classroom, I think it would probably be a good idea because they're definitely a distraction. Um, I don't think it's good. For, they don't. There's no need for them really in the classroom. If they needed to get a hold of them, it could be outside recess time or if they need to get out of the classroom. Yep. Do you think young people are too reliant on their phones? Sure. Yep, yep, they are. Yeah, it starts a lot earlier now than it did, so I think it's getting worse, and it probably will continue to get worse. Do you think cell phones should be banned in the K-12 school system here? Yes. How come? I just think it's a distraction. They should be paying attention to their uh, education, not uh, worrying about what's on a cell phone. What do you think about being able to stay in touch with family in the case of an emergency? There's always a phone at the office. It's un- totally unnecessary. Do you think young people are too addicted to their devices these days? Absolutely. I think everyone will agree with that. Well, I mean, I had kids with cell phones, uh, and for me, it was um, just wanting to know where they were and to feel safe. But within the classroom, absolutely. So uh, allow them in the school, allow, but not in the... Not in the classroom, yeah. That's my, yeah. Do you think young people are too addicted to their phones these days? Very much so. It's crazy. I I have a granddaughter, and uh, she's got her face in her phone all the time. So, yeah. How do you break her away from the screen time? 
It's really hard. It's really hard, especially if I think it's uh, the onus is on the parents to have the kids involved in extracurricular activities. The more they're involved in other things, the less they're going to spend on their devices. They should be banned, yes, because all together. They should use them when they get out of the classroom and only in the classroom or emergencies if their parents need them. And anyway, if the parents need them, they can call the school office and get their child. Just like the good old days. Just like the good old days. I think the kids trans um, is more conscious, more on their phone than they are actually in the classroom learning something. Do you think it would keep their focus on their work? Yes, they, and it, it would. But would you be okay with them bringing it into the school, just keeping it under, well, I guess, it, under yes. a zipper? Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, that, that I could agree, but still, you know, with, with, with young people, they're going to take it out and look down on their thing and see if somebody's ringing them or calling them, believe you me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think young people are too reliant on their phones? Yes, they are. I, I think they are. They rely on it for learning they don't know how to add they don't know how to write they really and truly i agree they should be back in my day <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with having a cell phone i mean it's great for emergencies yes on your own spare time you know have fun with it but really truly in the classrooms it should not be allowed what about You're in the classroom at recess okay that's fine okay. it's a recess because i mean after all that is their time they can do whatever they want on their breaks just like at work OCM's out asking people if they think cell phones should be banned from the K-12 school system in Newfoundland and Labrador. Oh, what do you think about that? Huh? Well, I, think, I, I think definitely in class. I think they should have it like in case of emergencies for if they have to make contact mm -hmm. with parents or something. But outside of that, yes, I do. There you go. So keep it out of the classroom. Keep it out of the classrooms. What about lunch and recess? They're going to do the same thing anyway. There. Uh, the reset is going to be in the class after that. So no, I think it should be banned completely. Yes, yeah. Definitely, no, definitely, I, I agree. I think, yes, have it for emergencies, but in school, there's, other, there's plenty of other things to be doing than being on the phone. Do you think young people are addicted to their phones these days? Definitely, oh, the same, same as you are with everything else. Anything that's electronic, they're addicted, yes. How do you get young people off their phones? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, try and find an activity that, that can yeah, equal that, and that's going to be very that. difficult. And I was out and about speaking with people in the metro area about the possibility of a school cell phone ban here in Newfoundland and Labrador. A lot of different opinions there. It seems like most people are gravitating towards banning it from the classroom, but not from the school entirely. Well, we're going to be right back with more to bring you here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Good Sunday morning, and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, the federal government has introduced a two-year limit on student visas for international students coming to Canada amid concerns over what was being termed a population trap. The Canadian Federation of Students in this province has expressed their dissatisfaction with Ottawa's decision to limit the number of students coming to Canada. Well, to look at it on the local level, Provincial Immigration Minister Jerry Byrne joined us earlier this week. How do you anticipate the visa cap will affect Newfoundland and Labrador's educational institutions and local economy? Wow, you know, it's, this is a very, very significant, serious issue. It's complex, and so I did take some time to really, really dig into it before pronouncing one way or the other the impact on Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, but I'll say this with a teaser, is that this is actually has the strong potential to be in our province's best interest. 
let me kind of walk through just where we really need to go in terms of analyzing this issue. What do uh, international students do for us in the country and across uh, and in our province? What exactly is it we're trying to achieve? How are those goals being met? And can we do it better? Well, you know, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Jerry Lynn, um, attracting and welcoming international students into our province is not just good for, you know, our diversity, uh, exposing ourselves and our province to new cultures, but it's also a strong economic generator. The international students that come here to go to school, to go to post-secondary education, probably contribute, based on the estimates, the uh, analysis that I've seen, $150 million a year to our local economy, to our GDP. That's not a small or insignificant amount of money. They contribute to tuition to the schools that they attend, uh, the rent, the groceries, uh, just basic cost of living items they contribute, and it all goes into our economy. So when the federal government imposed this cap on international students coming into the country, I really had to dig down with a lot of vigor to try to find out exactly what it's going to mean for Newfoundland and Labrador. So with that said, you know, we now have approximately uh, 5,300 international students in our province. Um, The federal government is approving about 3,000 applications per year. You know, across Canada, that's in stark contrast to across Canada, Jerry Lynn, there are approximately 1 million international students currently in Canada studying today. Canada takes in or did take in 600,000 applications every year. And every application from an international student, it's, it's for the duration of their program. So if there are students of, looking for a student visa um, and their program is three, three years long, they'll get a three-year visa. And that's, that's how it works here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So with that said, uh, we had to dig down as to where the federal government was going with this when they imposed a cap. Last year, there were 600,000 applications, or sorry, approvals of student visas uh, for international students. This year, this coming year, they're saying, Ottawa is saying, we're going to cut that by 35% and bring the number down to 360,000 study permits available. So that's a big, that caused a big, big, uh, you know, level of concern across the country. How does it impact on Newfoundland and Labrador? Well, with approximately uh, uh, 5,300 international students in our province, stark contrast from the 1 million across the entire country, we will actually generate the capacity here based on the numbers that I've seen and the rules that Ottawa are suggesting they're prepared to impose. We could actually see our number of approved international student applications in our province go from 3,000 a year to 48 or 4,200, depending on the calculation the federal government uses. This is very significant. And um, quite frankly, we can handle this. This is something that uh, it would be good for Newfoundland and Labrador to get that bump up. So we could actually see more international students as a result of this cap. 
We certainly could, and I really want to spend some energy now to explain why and why this would be good. Uh, the federal government just did not say that, you know, there's a population trap. They, they, they did say that, but they said more specifically that there are a growing industry in our, in our country of backroom organizations and institutions putting up a sign out front of a, of a strip mall uh, saying that they are a private uh, training college. Come to us and get your diploma. There are a number of organizations in Ontario and BC that the federal government has pointed out that are basically just one-door institutions that um, are provide are charging exorbitant fees to international students under the allure of come to Canada, study for a bit, and you might be able to get your permanent residency. So that's really what the federal government wanted to crack down on, is these one-door strip mall colleges. Right, without proper supports in place. Minister, we're up against... we don't have in Newfoundland and Labrador. Right, right. And I did confirm that with uh, representatives of the Canadian Federation of Students here in Newfoundland and Labrador. What would you say to current and prospective international students who may be concerned about their future in the province? And we only have about a minute, Minister. They will be fine. Listen, we will fight for them. We will make sure that their visas are maintained. But here is the opportunity for Newfoundland and Labrador. Given our exceptionally high standards that we have exposed to the federal government and we can trumpet as truth, Newfoundland and Labrador can become, should become, and will become a welcoming place for international students that the federal government could take pride in because we certainly darn well do. We have the most regulated post-secondary education environment in the entire country. It's time for us to take advantage of that, gain the benefits from that, for Canada to recognize that. And to our international students that are here, we have your back. We recognize that you, what you contribute to us, what we can contribute back to you. And Newfoundland and Labrador sees this as an opportunity, not as a problem. We just need the federal government to recognize our strengths. We are not the problem. Ontario and BC and their institutions are don't throw the baby out with the bathwater we can grow our economy and grow our uh, our post-secondary environment here and grow the number of international students and do so in a welcoming way and that is the provincial immigration minister jerry byrne joining us on your vocm mornings earlier this week breaking a little news really just sort of describing how the cap will actually could translate to more international students coming into the province. Well, look at the time, Ben. Just like that, our time is just about up here on the best of your VOCM mornings. Hope you all have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. We will be back tomorrow morning, 5.30 to 9 a.m. with everything you need to know. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday. I'm easy like Sunday morning.